Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, in case you haven't heard yet, we are starting into a new series this week called Revealed on the Book of Revelation. And uh, we announced this last week. I don't know what your initial reaction was to uh, the fact that we were going through a book together, the book of Revelation together. Uh, I don't know what your reaction has been maybe in the past to studying or approaching this book. Uh, maybe for some of us, I, I know that probably for all of us, there is some kind of reaction because the book of Revelation, for good or for bad in some cases, uh, has a reputation that precedes it. And you know that something has gone mainstream when a meme is made about it, right? I was uh, actually found this, I actually saw this meme come across my social media feed this past week, so I couldn't resist bringing it to you this morning. Take a look at that. Uh, it says, me looking outside to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. Uh, <laughs> often the world can feel like that at times, right? Especially in the times that we're going through right now and all that we're experiencing. But depending on your reaction to this, I know that for some, uh, there might be a reaction of, let's call it a bit of trepidation, maybe a little bit of fear or hesitancy, being afraid of what to expect, either due to the contents of this book, you've read through it and you know what's in it, and so maybe you're a little bit, uh, a little bit anxious about what it is that we're going to be talking about through this series. Uh, maybe it's just about the reputation of the book. Or maybe it's about the guy teaching it. I think in any case, like, no one would blame you for feeling that way to some degree. Uh, for some of you, maybe your reaction is the opposite. You're excited. You're ready to go. You've been waiting for something like this for a while. You maybe, have, maybe you haven't had a chance to go through a sermon series on the book of Revelation before, and so you're really excited to get into it. For others, maybe you aren't fully either excited or scared. You're somewhere in the middle. Right? We might call this cautiously anticipating what we are going to experience over the next 27 weeks that we're going to be going through the book of Revelation. For others, maybe you're just not really uh, sure what to think. Maybe you've never gone through a study on the book of Revelation before. Maybe you've never even read it before. Maybe you've tried to read it and you realize that you have no idea what's going on in the book and so you've put it down and, uh, and tried to read maybe another book instead. If you have any of those reactions, let me tell you, I can relate. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been reading the Bible, actually, for almost my entire life. And actually, kind of given my background, given my position, given what I do for a living, I've done a lot of Bible studies in my life. And I've engaged with the book of Revelation uh, plenty of times. And I think I can say that I've had all of those kinds of reactions to the book of Revelation at different places in my life. Sometimes all at once. I've been both Afraid and excited and also just not knowing what to think as I've gone through it uh, in, in past years. So no matter where you're coming from, I get it. And I think that's a big reason why we're going to be doing what we're doing here this morning. We're going to be doing something a little bit different than what maybe we might typically do as we're going through a study. We're going to focus a lot on laying the groundwork for this, for this book. Um, because I feel like, and, and I really believe, that the groundwork for Revelation, the context, in other words, for Revelation goes hand in hand with a proper understanding of what God means for us to get out of his word here in this book. And if you know me, you know that when it comes to studying and understanding the Bible, I am big on the fact that context is king. I believe context is king in particular wherever we go in the Bible, whatever book we're reading, it's important for us to understand the context. And there are two main forms of context, both of which we're going to explore today as they relate to the book of Revelation, that we need to know almost any time we are reading in any book of the Bible. And I would say that um, more than anything, more than almost probably any other book, context is essential to understanding the book of Revelation. 
So here are the two kinds of contexts we're going to talk about today. The first one is what is known as historical cultural context. In other words, what was the original, original setting of the book, and uh, how was it written? where was it written, what culture are we talking about as we talk about a book like Revelation? And then secondly, literary context. We're going to talk about that as well. Literary context concerns the forms of literature that God uses to write his word. I think in both cases we realize that both things are inspired. God inspired a specific time, a specific author, a specific culture in which he wrote his word. And also, God inspired the forms by which he wrote his word. You may know that there are different forms of literature in the Bible. There's poetry, there's narrative. We're going to get into letter today when we talk about the book of Revelation and some other forms as well. And so as we do, I think that just to give you kind of an, uh, an understanding of where we're going with this, I want a simple picture of the interpretive process of what it looks like to interpret Scripture. Right? So there's four major steps Anytime we come to the scriptures, and you see the first two steps there are understanding historical and cultural context and literary context, even before we get to the observation, which is kind of how we get the meaning out of scripture, and then once we get the meaning, we apply it, of course. And so, as we talk about historical cultural context, we're going to start with that. This morning, I think it's important for us to realize how, it, how, how essential it is, and anytime we go to scripture, to understand the historical cultural context, because Anytime you go to read the scripture, you're engaging with documents that are anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 years old, depending on where you're reading in the, old, in, in, the, in the scriptures, from New Testament to Old Testament. When we also consider the fact that the Bible was written in a different culture on the other side of the world than the culture that we live in today, there's a lot of work we have to do sometimes to get back to that culture to really understand where that message is rooted in. And as we do, the goal is to understand what that message meant originally to those original recipients of the scriptures, so then we can understand the timeless message and then make an application to our setting and our context so that we can live God's word out faithfully. Now, the goal ultimately is to get to this place where then we can live this out in our lives, of course. Now, depending on the biblical book you're reading in, Context is sometimes more important than other places, right? I think it's sometimes our, when we open up Scripture, we just want to get to it, right? And so we get into this ancient book, and we want to immediately apply ancient, an ancient book to a modern-day understanding. And in some cases, really in a lot of cases in Scripture, you can kind of get away with that. I will say this, though. With the book of Revelation, you cannot get away with that. In fact, in a lot of cases, the, the reason why our interpretation of, of, of the book of Revelation can go sideways very quickly is because we fail to consider and understand the proper context. So that's what we're going to talk about here today. And what I mean by that is this. Although we may think that the book of, we may think, when we think of the book of Revelation, we may think about it for all of its symbolism. And there is a lot of symbolism. We're going to cover that a little bit today. We're going to talk about it all throughout the series, including next week in particular. But we see all of this imagery that comes out of the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it. But one thing that's important to understand is that the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It's written as a letter, like much of the New Testament is written. We just got out of the, the book of Ephesians, of course. The book of Ephesians was a letter written to the church at Ephesus. And so when it comes to a letter, the first thing we need to realize is that this letter was written to specific recipients who were dealing with a particular situation in life that God wanted to speak to them about. It's not unlike if you and I, well, we'll say this, as he's speaking to them about that specific situation that they are facing in their context, he's also speaking to them from a context of relationship. 
right? This is, these are the churches that are going to be, we're going to find out in, in, in verse 4, chapter 1 of Revelation, that there are seven churches that this letter is addressed to, in particular in the first century. And so God's speaking to them from the standpoint of he being their God and they being followers, of course, of Jesus. So there's a relational aspect there, too. It's not unlike if you or I were to write a letter today, or let's say maybe more like an email or a text thread. When we're communicating to someone, we're communicating to them specifically about their situation, specifically from a relational context. And if a third party were to come in, not knowing anything about our conversation, not knowing anything about our relationship, and start reading our texts and reading our emails, there's some work they would have to do to, to supply the proper relational context and conversational context to really understand what's going on. In some cases, especially if you're writing to a good friend, it might be something of, you know, figures of speech that you use, or maybe inside jokes that you're using as you're writing to them, or maybe references to an experience that you had that nobody else shared that you're writing about in an email or a text. All those things are about context. Now, I'm hesitant to say that there are any inside jokes in the book of Revelation, but I think you understand what I'm saying. The relational context here is important. So we're going to continue to talk about context surrounding the book as we go, but here's what we need to know about the setting of the book as we begin to get into it today. First of all, as I said, in chapter 1, verse 4, we're told that this letter was addressed to the seven churches in Asia during the first century. So here's a picture, here's a map of where those churches were. If you notice, it's kind of hard to see, but kind of faintly at the top, you can see that that is basically modern-day Turkey. But it's called Asia in this letter because that's what it was known as under the Roman Empire. This is an area that was dominated by the Roman Empire. It was a part of kind of the eastern border of the Roman Empire at the time that the book of Revelation was written. Now here's an important point to remember about this, is that each city has a distinct challenge that they're, de- that they're dealing with. In other words, each church, I should say, has a unique challenge that they're dealing with as a result of the city that they are situated in. We're going to see Jesus address these churches in chapters 2 and 3. He has a message for each one of these seven churches in their particular situation. And he calls out certain challenges, certain things they're doing well, but also encourages them and rebukes them in certain places based on the way that they are living in their context. Now here's why this matters, though. In first century Rome, the church was in a position of being challenged on two fronts according to their faith. The first was persecution. By the time that this letter is written, the book of Revelation is written in the first century, which is around 80 to 95 AD, so the end of the first century, persecution was generally accepted in the Roman Empire, and in fact, it was actually a policy that was adopted under the emperor Nero, who had come about 20 to 30 years prior to this. So there was legalized persecution in Rome specifically against Christianity. And it was a policy that was still in effect during the time that this letter was written under the emperor by the name of Domitian. Now, he was the Roman Empire during this letter. He was also the one that likely put the author of this book, John, on exile in the island of Patmos. You can see Patmos marked there on the map as well. And so John, as a result of being an early leader in the church, was exiled out to the island of Patmos as a part of his punishment for being a Christian. This was state-sanctioned persecution against Christians. Now, in addition to the legalized persecution from the Roman Empire, first-century Christians also faced another threat to their faith in the form of what, is no, what was known as civil religion. Now, this, that, that doesn't mean civil religion in the sense of religion that is civilized, What it means is a civil religion in the sense that religion is joined together with uh, with participation in the civil political world. 
In other words, uh, at the time, the emperor of Rome was worshipped as a god. And if you were a Roman citizen, you were actually expected to engage politically, socially, and religiously in the worship of Rome and in the worship of the emperor as well. At the time, the Roman Empire was an imperial cult, which meant that the government, and in particular the Roman Empire, or emperor, was considered to be an institution that was to be religiously worshipped in its character. Now, as biblical scholars have pointed out, here are some of the beliefs that were commonly held by Roman citizens at the time because the Roman officials enforced this in the, in the everyday life. And these, by the way, were messages that were repeated over and over again in everyday life so that Romans would get the point. First of all, the gods have chosen Rome. That the Roman, emperor was chosen, the Roman Empire and the emperor were chosen by the gods to not only govern the Roman Empire, but also to be representatives of the gods on earth. Secondly, Rome and its emperor are agents of God's rule, his will, or their will, I should say, salvation and presence among human beings. Rome manifests the God's blessings, security, peace, justice, faithfulness, fertility among those who submit to Rome's rule. Fourth, the rule of the gods through Rome was accomplished by and manifested in violence, domination, and pacification. In other words, Anybody who was opposed to Roman rule, anybody who was seen as somebody who was not falling in line with worshiping the emperor, and anyone who was not seen as, or maybe even a challenge to Roman authority, was dealt with by pacifying their influence, pacifying um, maybe even their lives, so to speak, by violence, either through imprisonment or in some cases death. This is, by the way, the same policy that, uh, under which the Romans executed Jesus as the king of the Jews. They saw him as an insurrectionist who threatened Roman authority uh, as the king of the Jews and put him to death on a cross as a result. The emperor himself was worthy of praise, devotion, and allegiance. He was also worthy of having divine titles such as Lord, Lord of all, God, Son of God, and Savior. Those titles may, may be familiar to you if you're familiar with the Bible. Prayers could be offered both for him and to him. So he was both someone you could pray for to the gods and someone you could pray to as, as one who was considered to be equal to the gods. And then finally, the imperial age of Rome is the long-awaited golden age, even the eschatological age in which humanity's hopes have been fulfilled and will continue forever. Now, those of us who are 2,000 years past the fall of the Roman Empire might find that last statement kind of comical. Did not continue forever, of course. But as you look at a list like this, it's not hard to see the direct similarities between kingdom of God language in the Bible, and even in particular those statements that are assigned to the emperor, and how they conflict with us assigning those understandings and titles to Jesus himself and his kingdom. Again, these were ideas that were continually taught and reinforced through everyday life in Rome. So through things like the famous Roman games, through things like parades and statues and coins which presented the emperors as gods even on the coin inscription. Temples were even built. And some within these cities that we're talking about in Asia were built to both former emperors and emperors who were in power at the time. And here's what ties all of this especially to the seven churches is that that area of Asia that we saw up there on the map earlier was widely recognized as the imperial cult center of the Roman Empire. In other words, if you wanted to go worship the emperors or worship the pagan gods, it was in that area of Asia where primarily that activity was centralized. And in each of the seven cities, 
that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are these statues and temples that are erected in those cities as religious cult worship centers that everybody from all over the empire would come to worship in. So you can imagine how difficult it would be to live in a culture and an environment like that that is recognized for imperial cult worship when you're trying to worship the one who is truly the Lord of all, who is truly the Savior, who is truly the Son of God. And of course, as the Romans recognized, calling Jesus of Nazareth, who in their view was just a crucified Jewish teacher, Lord of all, Savior of all, God and Son of God, was blasphemous to them. In fact, the Romans called Christians in the early first century atheists because they didn't worship the gods of Rome and because they didn't worship the emperor of Rome. And so as a result, it was a crime under the Roman government that was worthy of punishment, which could result in being imprisoned like the author of this book John was, or even in some cases being uh, executed like so many Christians experienced under the notorious Emperor Nero, who put this into place in the first place. So again, this is a theme that we're going to revisit over and over again throughout this series. But this is one of the themes that as we see through all throughout the book, the book is encouraging the Christians of the first century to stay as faithful witnesses in Jesus as they experience pressures to conform to both imperial religion and persecution and the Roman way of life that is pressing in against them in all ways of, the, of, their, of their everyday lives as they live in the Roman Empire. Now, of course, this situation and temptation, you may recognize, is not unique to the Roman Empire in the first century. It's not unique to these seven churches in the, church, in the book of Revelation. It actually goes all the way back into human history. You could argue that it starts all the way back at the Tower of Babel, even before. This is something that the Israelites struggled with in the Old Testament in terms of how do we worship God as our king instead of worshiping the kingdoms and the kings of this world. Where the temptation might be often to look to the kings and kingdoms of this world to provide what we need. Again, you saw that list in terms of security and peace and all the things that the Roman Empire promised to give its Roman citizens something that we all need and want as human beings. There was a temptation all the way throughout the Old Testament for the Israelites, even though God said, I will be your king, to first of all look to a human king and then look to the kings of other nations. If you remember the story, God says, I will be your king. He establishes Israel as a, as a, as a kingdom under God, literally. But they look to the other nations and they say, well, they all have human kings. We want a human king too. And even though it breaks God's heart, God gives a human king to Israel uh, from the Israelites. And then that's not even good enough. The king then begins to make pacts and agreements with all of the other nations around them, which leads Israel into idolatry. Not only do they rely on other kings to provide the things that God said he would provide for them, but they also begin to worship the other gods along, Yahweh, along with Yahweh, the God of Israel, throughout the Old Testament. And we see this cycle play over and over again in the Old Testament it's a large part of what the prophets were warning the Israelites about until they finally get to this place of exile, where God sends them into exile. It's something that the early church was dealing with, and it's something that, if we're honest, we have to deal with today in our own world as well. And so we're going to continue to revisit the historical and cultural setting of Revelation throughout our series, but we need to get to the second piece of critical context as it relates to Revelation, which is literary context. When we're talking about literary context, the first thing we need to know is the literary form of the book. In other words, in what form was it written in? I said earlier that just as God inspires his words to us, he also inspires how he communicates those words to us. 
He inspires the author, he inspires the setting, but he also inspires the forms in which he has written his word to us. I said earlier that, of course, I mentioned already that the book of Revelation is written as a letter, specifically as a New Testament ancient letter. And for the first three chapters, we see that it really does take the form of a letter. You get through Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, there's some, some symbolism in there, and it's a little bit different maybe than the book of Ephesians, but for the most part, it reads like a New Testament letter. And so if you've tried to read the book of Revelation, you've probably gotten through chapter 3 pretty easily, and then you open up to chapter 4, and you're like, what in the world is going on in this place, right? Chapter 4 changes everything, because what happens is we go from, of course, the form of a letter, moving into what is known as apocalyptic literature, and then prophetic literature that is matched with and mixed with apocalyptic literature, and that's what guides the rest of the book of Revelation, all contained within a letter. And look, really, each one of these forms are really a part of the message and the purpose of the book of Revelation. For instance, the form of a letter tells us about God's personal words to a church that he intimately knows and loves. He sees what they're going through. He sees the persecution that they're experiencing. He sees the pressure that they're facing on a daily basis. And so he writes this personal letter to them to encourage them, uh, to warn them, to challenge them, and to give them hope. They're directed from sender to a recipient written for a specific reason. And what we're going to see, though, as we move into kind of this apocalyptic and prophetic forms of the book of Revelation is that there are different purposes aiding that same purpose as well. When I say the word apocalyptic, for example, what comes, what comes to mind uh, immediately when I say that word for you? Probably something like this, right? Probably something like that. Does that come to mind when I say the word apocalyptic? What jumps to mind immediately? I think it's something like this, because I put apocalyptic in the Google machine, and this is what it came up with. These are like three of the images that it came up with. So. But here's the thing, is there's a reason for that, right? The way that we typically use the word apocalypse in English means something like the end of the world or the destruction of the world. In fact, if you look up the word on dictionary.com, the definition for apocalypse is the complete and final destruction of the world, as described in the biblical book of Revelation. That's in the dictionary.com definition. It actually refers to the book of Revelation. It defines the actual word by a reference to this book in Scripture. So I guess that means that Revelation is all about the end of the world and the destruction of the world, right? Well, there's a problem with understanding Revelation and even the word apocalypse this way, at least from a biblical standpoint. First of all, the word apocalypse is not an English word. It's actually, it actually comes from the Greek word uh, apocalypsis, which does not mean the end of the world or the destruction of the world at all. Apocalypsis simply means to be revealed or disclosed or to be unveiled. That's it. doesn't have anything to do with the end of the world or the destruction of the world. Somehow, when this, world got, when this word got transliterated into English, apocalypsis, and got transliterated into the word apocalypse, there was a misunderstanding in terms of what that word meant, and we're left with this understanding, this common understanding of apocalypse, meaning the destruction of the world, in our modern English vernacular. Now, of course, when we're talking about the Bible and trying to understand it, right, one of the things that we want to do is make sure that we understand the Bible for what it is actually saying. And at times, what that means for us is having to change our minds and our perspectives about maybe what we thought we knew. And I think in a lot of cases, this word apocalypse is kind of at the heart of that. Because the word itself is used several times in the Bible and in a lot of other contexts. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project points out that one of the places where apocalypto, apocalypto, I should say, 
which is the verb form of this word, is used as in Matthew chapter 11. And I want to read, so you can listen for, and listen for the context here. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So we'll just leave that scripture up for a minute, leave that slide up. Everywhere you see the word, the English word revealed is actually the Greek word apocalypto. Now consider that for a moment. Read that back into this and see what we come up with. What we're told is that Jesus is saying that God has apocalypsed these things to little children. And what we're told is that Jesus apocalypses the Father to people, to the world. Now, that seems a little bit awkward, doesn't it, to say that? And it has to do with our understanding, really, of this word apocalypse. If we read it back in and we understand that this has to do with being revealed, it fits perfectly. But if we understand it as some sense of the end of the world, it makes no sense. How in the world, right, is Jesus apocalypsing these things to little children? And so this may be, I think, one of the most important things to understand as we get into the book of Revelation. You may know or you may have heard that the very first word in the book of Revelation is this word, apocalypsis. It is the very first word. It's where the book gets its name. And I think in this case, we've actually, we've actually given a really good English title to this book because it does mean revelation. And that's why we've named this series, by the way, Revealed, to remind us over and over again that this is what this means. This is God, this is God revealing his plans and purposes to us through this book. It's not necessarily about the end and the destruction of the world. And so on the one hand, that's really straightforward because when you think about it, revealing is exactly what God's word does for us. That's God's, that's God's purpose in his word. He gives us his word so that he would reveal who he is. He would reveal what he's doing in the world, where he's bringing everything to, what his purposes are, and then who we are and what role we play in that and who we are in relationship to God. That's what God's word does. It reveals to us all of those things from the heart of God. On the other hand, though, of course, when we start reading it, we run into these other worldly visions of like dragons and beasts and famine and disease and fire, and it begins to freak us out. And we automatically begin to think about just the end of the world. But in reality, what God is doing in all of this is giving us an understanding, a peek behind the curtain, if you will, of what he is doing at any given moment in history. We see apocalypses happen actually throughout Scripture. Some examples are seen in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, and we see them in the New Testament even, uh, in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts as well. And what classifies an apocalyptic vision is that it's a special revelation given to a human being through a dream or vision by God that then God tells that person to go communicate to his people. Most of the time for the purpose of encouraging them, giving them hope in a really tough situation, encouraging them in their faith when they're tempted to not be faithful in following God. Uh, theologian Michael Gorman this finds it this way, the function of apocalyptic literature. And he says the function of apocalyptic literature seems fairly clear. To sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis, particularly evil and oppression. Apocalyptic literature both expresses and creates hope by offering scathing critique of the oppressors, passionate exhortations to defiance, 
and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil. Apocalyptic literature enables such hope and resistance by revealing the truth about unseen present realities, such as God, heaven, and hell, and about unknown future realities, such as judgment and salvation. So again, to put it another way, it's about God giving us a peek behind the curtain to see what he's doing, to see often what we cannot see in the natural world. That when we look at the world around us and we see the situations that we're in and we become captive to the situations that we're in, we're, we're, we're rarely aware of the fact or rarely even present, it's rarely present in our minds that God is doing something behind these scenes that we cannot see. These apocalyptic visions that happen throughout church history and in the Bible are designed to give us a peek back in behind the curtain to see true reality for what it is. What is God doing about the current situation that we face? Yes, this is what we see, but this is what is really going on behind the scenes. And so speaking of what God is doing now and how God calls us to respond, because we are given apocalyptic visions not just to be encouraged necessarily, but also to be encouraged to actually engage and live out our faith in the present day reality. Not to cower in fear and to wait for the future to come, but to actually live out our faith in the here and now. You see this happen throughout Scripture as apocalyptic and prophetic go together. The prophetic, role, the prophetic form goes together with the book of Revelation, helping us to see then this is how we respond. We've seen this. God has shown us the reality. He's shown us the peak behind the curtain. Now this is the calling, and this is why it makes a difference even now in the world that we live in today. Right from the outset, I think it's important for us to clarify when we talk about prophetic form what we mean. We're not talking specifically just about future events. Although the book of Revelation, of course, has uh, some, some sections about future events and eschatological reality, certainly um, some of these pieces do, but at the same time, the prophetic form is calling us to, to impact, uh, to use our faith or to exercise our faith now in some way. Again, as Michael Gorman explains the prophetic function, prophecy in the biblical tradition is not exclusively or even primarily about making pronouncements and predictions concerning the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. You know, one of the most well-known apocalypses in the early church uh, comes from Acts chapter 9. You may remember the story. It's when Paul is on the road to Damascus. At the time, his name is Saul. And Saul is persecuting Christians, and he's pursuing Christians that have left the city of Jerusalem to go get sanctuary in the city of Damascus, and he's pursuing those Christians to either imprison them or to put them to death. We're not really sure, but he's imprisoning, but he's going, to go, he's going after them because he believes what they're doing is blasphemous. For them to worship this Jesus of Nazareth is blasphemous towards the God of Israel. And so Paul, or Saul at that time, believes that he is doing God's will. And of course, God interrupts him with a vision, an apocalypse that happens on the way to the road to Damascus. And we're not told about the details of that vision. We hear more of it more than we see it. And we're told that Jesus speaks to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as a result of that apocalyptic vision, Saul sees something that helps him understand that I'm pursuing actually the followers of the true Lord who is Jesus the Messiah whom God has promised from the Old Testament. And I'm persecuting God as a result. And so Paul changes in that moment his perspective because he's seen something that he wasn't seeing before as a result of this apocalypse. And it causes him then to live differently. He's given a prophetic direction then. 
Jesus says, because of what you have seen and because of what you have realized, you are now going to be my witness and you will experience persecution just like you have persecuted the Christians whom you are chasing down in Damascus. And it changes everything. Among other things, it changes Saul's name. It goes from Saul to the Apostle Paul. And as we know throughout history, the Apostle Paul is the most successful Christian missionary in history. And so, biblically, the prophetic function is to challenge God's people on what to do. In the Revelation, these prophecies flow out of the apocalypses. We see these visions, but these visions are not just for vision's sake. They're supposed to cause us to live in a certain way that is more faithful towards Jesus in the world by seeing what God is doing. Okay, so now that we've talked about these forms, we're going to dip our toe in the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to read the first three verses in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to see is really how these three forms are joined together, even in the explanation of how this book comes together as a biblical book. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all of what he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, in the very first few verses of this book, what you can see, you can see how the prophetic literature and the apocalyptic literature and the letter literature all complement one another. In other words, God, again, sees what is going on with his people. He sees the persecution, the temptation, the pressure to give up on their faith, and the fact that they are in need of hope, and he sends a message. And the way that he sends a message is he reveals it through an apocalyptic vision through John, Then John writes down what he sees in a letter form, and then that letter is communicated to the church to respond as a result of this. So you've got letter, you've got apocalyptic, and you've got prophetic established from from the very beginning. And that's what we're to expect as we move through this letter, as we move through this book over the next 26 weeks after this week. Now, from this perspective, though, I think it's important for us to realize is that once the church has seen this, once we have seen this, that we are more able to see things from God's perspective. And that and that, that should cause us to live differently because it infuses us with hope and faith. You know, so many times, I guess one of the things, if I'm personally just saying for, for me this morning, one of the things that I'm hopefully looking forward to in, in our series uh, is that is that the book of Revelation will have less of a fear-inducing mentality for us when we approach it and more of a, 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 more of a, a, of a faith-building, hopeful, encouraging aspect to it when it takes, roots in our, it takes root in our lives. Because in the end, that's what it's intended for. Yeah, there are some scary images in this. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. There are some things that we're going to have to really do a, a lot of work in interpreting and helping to understand. And there are some things that, by the way, I will, throughout this series, say there are some things we just really don't know. There's a couple different ways to interpret this and understand this. But that doesn't change the message of what is actually being communicated here. The message stays consistent all the way throughout the book. And it's a message that even when our fears are dominant, even when we are tempted to look at the things in our world and feel like everything is falling apart, That in reality, Jesus has never left his throne. And that in reality, he is communicating this to us so that his hope might meet where our fears are, are tempted to dominate. In other words, if Revelation is understood correctly, it shouldn't produce a church that is afraid of the world and is kind of looking around the corner for some antichrist who might be coming. By the way, the word antichrist is never in the book of Revelation. I don't know if 
if you know that, but it should produce a strong and hopeful church. A church full of faith who loves fearlessly and calls the world to follow King Jesus. That's the prophetic call of Revelation. We're going to talk about how that comes to the surface in some really vivid and life-giving ways as we go through it. But as God tells us here, this book is meant to be, in verse 3, a blessing from God. And this is the blessing of Revelation, that it's not meant to scare us, but to encourage us, to challenge us, and to warn us, and to confront us, yes. But in the end, to give us hope, and to call us to be more faithful, worshipful witnesses of the Lamb who was slain. And that's what makes it so powerful. Because every generation of the church needs the message of this book. Yes, it's rooted in the first century, but at the same time, this is God's eternal word. It's not just, it's not just for applying to the first century church. It is meant to speak to every generation of the church all the way into the future and certainly in the present day. So what does it mean, as we close out this morning, what does it mean for you to know that God sees our situation right now? How does that change the way you're seeing what is around you, either in your life or in the world around us? To know that God sees your situation, he sees it personally, and he cares about what is going on. That he cares about it so much, he wrote a letter 2,000 years ago so that today you might read these hopeful words, that you would see his heart, and that you would see what he is doing to maintain his faithfulness and his victory in your life and in the world through the church. That there is this reality that we cannot see all the time, but God wants you to know it so that you would have hope. Look, as we walk through the world today, we don't have the luxury of just kind of stopping and pulling back the curtain so that we can see what's happening in any given situation. But the book of Revelation gives us a big picture peeling back of the curtain to help us apply it to whatever we are facing in our world today. And God wants you to know it because it'll give you hope. He knows it'll increase your faith and he knows it'll truly make you free. And that is the design and the purpose of the book of Revelation. I'm going to close by saying this. I, I watched a lot of news this past week, as I'm sure many of you did. I don't typically watch a lot of news, especially when it comes to cable news channels, but I was glued to the news this past week because of what was going on um, in, in Afghanistan. I have uh, friends, missionaries that I know in the, in the region, and of course am aware of uh, a lot of the persecution that happens um, even under the previous government towards Christians and certainly is, is, is going to be increasing. And I, I was switching between kind of three of the major networks. I, I call this, when I watch the news, uh, balanced bias or balancing biases uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and so I don't remember which news anchor said this, but he said moving from a man-made disaster to a natural disaster. And he was talking, of course, of, of, of Afghanistan and moving it to talk about Haiti, which was the other big news story that was happening this week. Uh, the terrible earthquake and tropical storm that followed up and has just been pouring on the people of Haiti that has caused so much devastation out there. And, you know, no, no matter what you think of, of his words and his choice of phrase there, I thought about it in this way. It clicked to me right away. I thought to myself, that's a kind of a perfect uh, synopsis of human history, moving from a man-made uh, disaster to a natural disaster. So I feel like at any point in human history, uh, no matter what you pick, the year, pick the year, the month, the day, you're going to find something where there's a man-made disaster going on, a war, uh, an issue of, uh, of oppression, uh, economic collapse, slavery, and on and on. And at the same time, you're probably going to be able to switch back to a natural disaster, either an earthquake or a hurricane or a pandemic or whatever it may be. Pick a point in history and you can find those things in the world. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a book of history. I was going to call it uh, From Man-Made Disaster to Natural Disaster and Back Again. 
thought that'd be a, ti- a good title for, the book, for a book on human history. I don't think I'd probably sell very many copies of it, but I think it would be an apt description of really what human history looks like. It started with a man-made disaster back in the garden. And from there, it's gone from man-made disaster to natural disaster to man-made disaster to natural disaster, and over and over again. And I think about, in all of this, the fact that God still comes to us. Even though the world we live in is caused by man-made disasters all over the place, He comes to us by His Son. He comes to us through His Word. He comes to us as the one who saves us, reconciles us, promises us a hope and a future and a security in his kingdom, not the kings and kingdoms of this world. And I think about how important that is right now, especially for Christians in Afghanistan today who face an uncertain future, who are already facing persecution as we speak, where they're having to go into hiding as Taliban forces hunt them down and beat them, throw them into prison, and in some cases literally take their young daughters from their arms and force them into sex slavery. I think about a book like Revelation and how necessary it is for God to speak words of comfort towards us as he has throughout all the generations of the church from 2,000 years ago to this point. And I think the things that make Revelation a little scary for us, the things that will challenge us through this series, are the very things that we need to bring us such powerful and such real hope no matter what we're facing. And I wonder what those Christians this morning as they gather in worship, in whatever place they may be, in some hole in the ground or some small room underground hidden away, as they worship the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, how much words of comfort they might draw from a book like this. As we don't have to be in that situation, we don't have to be facing what the churches in Revelation faced, but at the same time, we need that comfort and hope, maybe as much as we ever have in the history of the church. So let's pray this morning. Father, we uh, thank you for your words here in Revelation. They strike us, they jar us, they, they, they captivate our imagination. But we know that they're designed to do that because, Father, you have meant these words to be uh, like a healing balm over wounds that uh, feel like they never close. And that just as one heals, another one gets ripped open. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone. One of the great reminders of the fact that you are with us is a book like this, that you see us. I think all the way back to um, your calling of, of Moses during the Exodus, during the time the Israelites were slaves, and you saw and heard their pain, you heard their cries. Lord, you have been responsive to your people all throughout history. And you were doing it again. You are doing it now, and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are experiencing an amount of persecution and evil that few of us can imagine, let alone describe. Lord, we pray that you would give them comfort this morning. We pray that they would be comforted by the Lamb who was slain. by the one who sees all, by the one who is still on the throne, even now. Lord, give them a peek behind the curtain. Because I'm sure all they can see right now is pain and devastation and heartache. Help them to see, Lord, that you have not forsaken them. You have not left them. But you are with them. 
and that the Lamb has truly won the victory because He has laid down His life on our behalf. And He has the authority to open the scroll so that the redemptive plan of God can take root in this world and that His kingdom can reign so that we get to that place where there will one day be no, no longer any tears and no longer any pain as is so wonderfully described at the end of the book of Revelation. And Father, I pray for this series that it would do much the same for us. Whether we're distracted, whether we're discouraged, whether we're depressed, whether it's things that have stolen our hope for living faithfully in this world, Lord, remind us faithfully of your goodness. Remind us of the purpose of words that you give us in Scripture. They're not just to be studied and digested and, and deciphered and pulled apart. They're to be actually um, consumed by us in a way that changes us, in a way that encourages us, in a way that calls us forward. So may your word be living among us because these are personal words to us today, no matter where we may be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. My prayer for you uh, comes right out of that song we just uh, sang. That uh, you would be filled with awestruck wonder simply at the mention of Jesus' name this week. Be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, the whole situation that's going on there. Um, in many ways, it's worse than we can imagine, and they need prayer. They need us to stand with them uh, when they're struggling, just as they would stand with us if we were struggling. Um, this morning, uh, if you would like prayer, we have... Hashuaras over here who are ready to pray with you. They're our prayer partners as we close out this service. Also, if you uh, would like us to be praying for something that's going on in your life, co-workers' life, family members' life throughout the week, we have prayer cards that are, lo prayer cards that, sh that are located at the table back there. And if you could grab one of those prayer cards, fill it out, drop it in the offering stand as we leave this morning. Uh, and we'll make sure that it gets to our staff team, our prayer team, and our elder team when we pray over those requests each week with you as you're praying through them on your own as well. So thank you again for being here. Great to see all of you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.